0: Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I am the Toon's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely. And here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Welcome back, Tomb Believers. My name is James Hickson. And I'm Trey Lawson. And we have just escaped from the Tomb of Ideas. Woo! Yeah. And we are on the road. We found this car parked right outside the tomb with keys in in the ignition, and we are on our way. Yep. Wait a minute. Trey, this isn't the way to my house, or your
1: apartment. Nope. We are headed north. Why? Because, you see later on Joe Bob Briggs is gonna be doing a thing in nearby North Carolina and he's gonna be talking all about redneck movies uh-huh
0: so even though we've been trapped for months in a tomb and forced to, re- to review Marvel Horror Comics from the 1970s you're gonna take us to a show where a horror host is reviewing uh,
1: horror films, probably from the 1970s? Um, yeah, that, that about sums it up. Although probably also some action movies. Um, it's uh, Given the title of, of the show, I, I expect a healthy mix of genres. Cool, okay, yeah. yeah. Family, my family can wait. <laughs> uh, I mean, they've done without you this long.
0: They're probably better off, really.
1: <laughs> um, and uh, so, after that... Uh, we're still not going home.
0: Oh. Why
1: not? Because I've got a whole schedule planned out. We've got an itinerary. Okay. So, we're hitting up Joe Bob. Okay. Then, we're going to come back down to South Carolina. Okay. Because former editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics and uh, local boy for our area, Roy Thomas, is going to be uh, making an appearance at a local con. Oh, cool.
0: I, I, I wouldn't mind seeing Roy again.
1: Yeah, he's a nice guy. and Yeah. Uh, and uh, I figured we could maybe chat with him a little bit before we uh, finally reunite with our families. Ooh.
0: Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been months that they're fine without us and, you know. Okay, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll go see Roy Thomas, too.
1: I mean, honestly,
0: will your family want to talk about Golden Age superhero comics? Probably not, but we could probably get Roy Thomas to talk to us about them. Right? Yeah. Okay. I'm feeling good about this. I like this plan, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it.
2: Right,
1: so,
0: tomb of ideas
2: on the road. woo Friday March 29th, opening night of The Last Drive-In, the series on Shudder, starring me, Joe Bob Briggs, doing more of that freaky stuff you love. A double feature every week, hosted by Joe Bob Briggs, written by Joe Bob Briggs, directed by Joe Bob Briggs, Produced by Joe Bob Briggs. I'll be working the camera, I'll be working the sound. Special effects by Joe Bob Briggs. Lighting by Joe Bob Briggs with a special appearance by one or two guests who will be fascinating, not for their intrinsic value as people, but because they're being interviewed by Joe Bob Briggs, me, kicking ass on the last drive in the series. I'll be kicking so much ass, I'll probably kick my own ass.
0: (laughs) And we're back. And we just got out of How Rednecks Saved Hollywood. Yeah. With uh, Joe Bob Briggs.
1: Indeed. That was a lot of fun. It was great. It was uh, really surprisingly educational. Yeah. It re- really was. I,
0: like, it was very well thought out, very well documented. As a history teacher, I have very few holes to poking it. Right.
1: Yeah, no, he he traces the origins of the class or group of people or whatever that you want to call it that we think of as rednecks going all the way back to sort of early modern England. Yeah. Which, I mean,
0: anyone will tell you, England is the south of Europe, because... Well,
1: and, and to, to be a little more precise, he actually traces them to the Scots-Irish. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, anyone will tell
0: you England is... Or, sorry, the United Kingdom, the British Isles, are the south of Europe, as evidenced by Brexit.
1: Huh.
0: If a stupid decision can be made, they will make
1: it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I... Uh was really, uh, sort of blown away by the sheer number of movie titles that he managed to fit in and talk about at some length.
0: Yeah. And of course we have stuff like Smokey and the Bandit, um, Hillbillies in a Haunted House.
1: Yeah. Uh, Gator. uh, Yeah. And its predecessor, White Lightning. Yeah. Um, trying to think, uh, Sharky's Machine comes up, Sling Blade. Like he spans from the silent era all the way up pretty much to the present day. And it was a really great crowd there. I thought. Yeah. Very responsive, very into it. Um, lots of Joe Bob fans. I I saw several of the, uh, the fright rags, uh, t-shirts even before people had hit the merch stand. Yeah.
0: I got my copy of Fangoria signed, which was a very nice gift from you. Thank you.
1: You're very welcome. Um, and, uh, I had a copy of, uh, Joe Bob Goes to the Drive-In that I found on, uh, eBay a while back. Not in the best shape, but, uh, a cool thing to have. Um, and I had a copy of Profoundly Disturbing, which is another book Joe Bob wrote. Um, so I got those signed. Uh, he had, amazingly, some pristine copies of Joe Bob Goes Back to the Drive-In, uh, which was the, the follow-up that collected more of his, uh, reviews, um, so I was sure to snap one of those up because he was selling them at cover price. And those things go on eBay for like a 100 bucks. Jesus. Although, I'd say worth it. Absolutely. And, and uh, I mean, to be clear, my copy is not going on eBay. I had it personalized to me because it was going on my bookshelf.
0: Same. Same. Now, we were actually lucky enough to meet Joe Bob. Uh, At the show. Very charming man. Very.
1: Um, Despite having had a very long day before he got to us. Yes. And doing a fairly uh, taxing one-man show. Yes. um, and, And then dealing with a whole crowd of fans both before and after. And, you know, he's very... He's
0: they were like we're gonna stay here until the last fan has been seen so i really admire that
1: yeah i respect that the only like i was telling james uh while we were at the show um the only other uh sort of famous person i have seen do that was guillermo del toro who would not leave until every fan had had at least a little bit of face time
0: I gotta say, of the famous people I met, I was more nervous meeting Joe Bob than I was when I met Bill and Hillary Clinton.
1: I mean, that's fair. I mean, Joe Bob Briggs, because of Monster Vision, and and Last Drive-In, but especially because of Monster Vision. Like, he's not just some famous movie star. Like, he's a guy who's, like, in your house every week, watching movies with you. Yeah.
0: And I think... At least on a in a way that kind of impacts you as a human being, his work matters more to me than say perhaps the Clintons. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm saying this is a guy who grew up in the 90s. The first president yeah. I was really aware of was Bill Clinton.
1: Uh, I've never heard Joe Bob use the term super predator.
0: Exactly. Wow, deep cut. (laughs) Uh, Although, if he did, I'm sure he was talking about, like, Jaws or something. Right. (laughs) Or or the Predator movies. There you go. (laughs) Uh, Very genuine guy. Happy to talk to you about stuff. You know, he asked us both what we did for a living. Yep. What Uh, subjects we teach. Yeah.
1: Um, He, uh... Uh, asked us a little bit about the show, actually. We talked a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, and uh, and also Darcy, the male girl, was fantastic.
0: Darcy is fantastic and utterly, utterly charming.
1: Yeah, just as friendly and personable and charming in person as she comes across on her Twitter.
0: Right. And you can really tell that she is a real fan, guys. She is not what some of you lame-ass dumb butts out there would call fake geek girl.
1: Absolutely not. I I hate that term anyway. Yeah. But, yeah, like... She... Like, we had a brief conversation about our favorite Sleepaway Camp sequel. Yeah,
0: because... Okay, I had not seen any of the Sleepaway Camp movies until the first Joe Bob Marathon. And it was like a revelation. I loved it. I thought it was a great film. And then you and she go into how Sleepaway Camp 2 is better.
1: And I mean, she says it's better. I, I like it fine. But I I think the first one is the is the best in sort of an objective sense. I can see where someone would think the second one is more fun. Okay. And I think better and more fun are two different things.
0: Okay. I have not seen any of the sleep... Sorry, I've seen the first Sleep Weekend, obviously. I've not seen any of the sequels. Sure.
1: Um,
0: I know they're putting out a documentary right now. Or they're trying to put out a documentary.
1: Yes. Yeah, there, there, there's a Indiegogo or Kickstarter or something for it. Okay. Um, which should be interesting. It's the same producers that did the... Uh, the Friday the 13th and the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street documentaries.
0: Right. Uh, Crystal Lake Memories and Never Sleep Again respectively.
1: Which are both very well done.
0: Yeah. I I honestly think Never Sleep Again is a little bit better.
1: Sure. I mean it's um, I think I think for the most part the people involved in terms of creative teams talking about the Nightmare Movies it's more in the rearview mirror, whereas, like, if you're interviewing Shawn S. Cunningham about Friday the Thirteenth, he's still thinking about making another one. There's a sort of protectiveness of the property that comes up there.
0: Yeah, that that seems legit. I I, I like the hours long documentaries about sh- about the horror business specifically about yeah. about show business as. As a rule, but especially about horror yeah. um, business. Have you
1: watched uh, Leviathan, uh, the Hellraiser documentary?
0: I have not. So far, I've only watched one Hellraiser movie. Okay.
1: Well, the documentary is only about one and two. Okay. So watch the second one, because the second one's real good and plays well back to back with the first one. But then the documentary is interesting because it, it, I think it's sort of in between. The the Freddy and the Jason docs. I don't think it's as good as the Nightmare one, but I think it's a little bit better than uh, the Jason one.
0: Funnily enough, the, the I've only recently watched Hellraiser, and of course that was in the first Joe Bob Briggs uh, Shutter Marathon. Oh yeah,
1: yeah. Um, well, the sequel's real good, <laughs> um, and some of the other sequels are okay too
0: first time I became aware of the Hellraiser people, Pinhead and all that, was in a, hor- a haunted woods walkthrough thing. Okay. Uh, oh, this is when I was a kid. Uh, I went to this thing when I was like elementary school, middle school age and it was a- basically a haunted house in the woods. Right. As you do out in but fuck Middle of Nowhere. Because the houses have people living in them.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and like they chased us out of the woods with chainsaws. And of course, my my dad picked me up afterwards, and I was convinced that my father had killed my mother and was driving me home so I would discover this and then he would kill me.
1: Oh. I mean that, that's logical.
0: Yeah, especially when you just got through a haunted house. But but again, that was easily twenty years ago, and I haven't watched a Hellraiser movie until within the last year. Gotcha. So yeah,
1: I uh, my first Hellraiser experience was uh, as a kid, and I don't think they were called this back then, but it was the equivalent of a Halloween Express, like one of the pop up Halloween costume shops. Yeah. Um, and were uh were there getting stuff for Halloween and and I'm a kid. I had to have been like I don't know, maybe 7 or 8. And there's what I think is a statue of Pinhead. Like like one of the big like almost mannequin type things dressed as Pinhead. Um except what I didn't realize when I turned my back on it was it was not a mannequin. It was a dude in a costume who was standing very, very still and just waiting to surprise me. Oh, dear. Yeah, no, that, that trip did not go well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> my daughter always insists that she is ready to go into the Halloween Express. But when we get to the Halloween Express, she was not ready to go to the Halloween Express. That's fair. This is my younger daughter, not my elder, right, older daughter. Right. Yeah, I figured. Yeah, the six, the sixteen-year-old. I, I figured,
1: it, I figured it was not the one who wanted a Monster Vision shirt.
0: Yeah, <laughs> not, not the one who's like Darcy is goals, right? Uh, and watches and she asks. So she is. She's is so great. Yeah, and asks like to watch horror films. So yeah, back to the back to um, Joe Bob. Joe Bob, really great experience and like you are saying the Redneck Films we were talking about in this online I really wanted to ask him I forgot to do so ask him how the movie Live and Let Die mm-hmm. the first Roger Moore Bond film fits into the Redneck Cinema tapestry
1: yeah because and, and I was flubbing my own film history here because I was saying it was riffing on things like White Lightning and uh, uh, Smokey and the Bandit but, of course, it couldn't be because, as we determined when we looked it up after the show, it came out the same year as White Lightning. And years before Smokey and Abandoned. Exactly. And so it was just, I guess, part of that zeitgeist of sort of redneck car chase sheriff movies.
0: Which we kind of see that with the comics we read. Yeah. Yeah from this era because that those all come out Live and Let Die White Landing Day all come out in 1973 yep the books we're covering right now on the show are from 1973
1: right and now there are some predecessors like there, there are some movies from a little bit earlier in the 60s that are not quite as polished and the character types aren't quite as established true so, so it, like it's building to something like they, they don't come out of nowhere but it's sort of in that moment that, that they start to solidify.
0: Yeah. Well, what was the the character from Living, Live and Let Die? Uh, oh, God. P.J. Culpepper or... Something, something? like yeah. that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then he shows up again in Man with the Golden
0: Gun. He does. Uh, He's on vacation. Yep. In, oh, my. And, of course, he runs into Bond again. And don't, don't he and Bond team up in Golden they're, Gun? They're,
1: they're in a car chase, like, in the same car. Oh, wow. Um, because there's sort of an oh no you again moment oh um, it's not great uh, but I guess for a while they thought that was part of the way that they were going to hook American audiences was by having this sort of recurring jokey southern sheriff character that would pop up every now and then
0: I suppose and
1: then of course the connections between James Bond and Redneck Cinema come full circle in the 90s because Joe Don Baker joins the recurring cast as a CIA agent. Yeah. Joe Don Baker,
0: best known to MST3K MST3K fans as
1: Mitchell! Yes. And also the protagonist of Final Justice.
0: That too. That too. Um,
1: I always liked that episode of MST3K.
0: The Joe Don Baker episodes are great. And, you know... Part of the, the the appeal of the Jodon Baker episodes, and this is wrong of us, is the fact that Jodon Baker, as publicly said, if he ever met the MST3K
1: guys, he would kick their butts. Yes, um, and probably could have back then. Yes. Um, but yeah, Jodon Baker, uh, one of the few people to play both a villain and a uh, protagonist in a James Bond movie.
0: Ally, I wouldn't call him a Ally. protagonist. Sure. Yeah, I
1: mean he his roles got smaller from film to film. Yes. Um, until he finally just disappeared. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, he, he played both a villain and someone who was on Bond's side.
0: And GoldenEye was actually the first movie I saw him in. And that was my first Bond film that I saw in... Really my first Bond film I saw, you know, when I actually had an interest in watching it. It yeah. was my first Bond film I saw in theaters. My dad. It was my first one in theaters, too. I guess it kind of makes sense, because right around the age where we were starting to see movies was during that break. It was the hiatus, yeah. The hiatus. Between Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan. Which, I think we've both been on the record on the show that our favorite film Bond is Timothy Dalton.
1: I would say so. I mean, I, I have a soft spot for Lazenby, but... I think Dalton came closest to nailing Fleming's version of Bond. Yeah. And
0: again, what I'm looking for is in a film Bond is fidelity to the source material. That's why I say that Timothy Dalton is the best film Bond. That's not necessarily to say that his movies are my favorite movies well, of and the I, series. I would also
1: say he's he's Fleming's Bond with some of the more problematic misogyny ironed out.
0: Yeah. But, you know, there are different Bond films for different moods. Yes. In my opinion. Yeah. Like, if I want something that's comforting and a really a fairly good little thriller, I will watch Goldeneye. Sure. Uh, if I want something that kind of has a 60s um, chic kind of sheen on it, I might watch Thunderball.
1: Yeah. Which is my favorite of the Sean Connery Bonds, by the way. It, it, it's the most polished. I, a lot of people go for Goldfinger. Yes. And, and I see why. Goldfinger was the first one where all the pieces fell into place. It yes. had the gadgets, it had the car, it had the villain, it had the villain's henchman. Like, all of the things you expect were fully formed in that movie. I like Thunderball better. Yeah, I, I kind of like the style of Thunderball a bit more. I, I like that it's it's in the Caribbean, because like, to me, the Bond movies that go to an island are always more interesting. Yes. Um, but yeah, so Thunderball definitely has that sort of uh, 60s swinging vibe to it that just puts it in a different place than something like uh, GoldenEye.
0: And as we've talked about before in the show, we both agreed that the best cinematic actual film of the Bond series is On Her Majesty's Se- Majesty Secret
1: Service. Yes. I could I could go at length on that movie because uh, it, it's doing a lot of interesting things in terms of genre and tone. Yes. <laughs> and it's borrowing a lot, weirdly enough, from the French New Wave. <laughs>
0: one, of the, one of the nice things about... On Her Majesty's Secret Service is... The character of James Bond... Actually has an arc... Yeah. In that film. Yeah. He isn't just a force of destruction... That acts upon... Everything else on the film... And comes out completely unscathed... (laughs) Sipping martinis.
1: And he has... Personal desires that don't always run... Parallel to... The things his job requires him to do.
0: I do think that... The Daniel Craig films kind of take a lesson from Honor of Majesty's Secret Service*. They do, especially with, like, say *Casino Royale*.
1: They do. I mean, in fact, I mean, in *Casino Royale*, you get sort of a a variation on the arc from Honor of Majesty's Secret Service*. Yeah, uh, which is is fairly well done. I have criticisms of it because I think *Casino Royale* has one too many endings.
0: I can understand that.
1: But, I think the cast is great, and I think uh, Daniel Craig is very good in it. Um, My other complaint with Casino Royale is that they cut out Baccarat and replaced it with uh, Texas Hold'em.
0: Yeah. Also, unlike On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Casino Royale does not have Telly Savalas as Blofeld, which was amazing.
1: And. Mads Mikkelsen is awesome, but his, yes. his villain character is underwritten. Yes. He's not
0: Blofeld. Which, I may have a slight bias. I did write a paper in college about Blofeld and his relationship to Bond, and it's re- how it reflects on the Cold War, but, right. you know. <laughs> Just a slight... Yeah, That's one thing I
1: I did not tell Joe Bob this, but I, I thought about it pretty hard. Was uh, one of the films he talked about a little bit was uh, the uh, the '60s gore classic uh, Two Thousand Maniacs, mm-hmm. um, which is about a small Southern town that was devastated during the Civil War. Uh, and so it reemerges every hundred years to take its vengeance on Yankees who pass through, as you do. Um, and I actually wrote a paper on this film. Um, well, I wrote a paper on that film and one that Joe Bob surprisingly didn't mention, um, called Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Um, which have you seen Tucker and Dale versus Evil? I've not. You should see Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Uh, for one thing, it stars Alan Tudyk. Okay.
0: Always a good good point. As a
1: redneck. Okay. Um, He, and I forget the other actor's name, but it's it's a pair of rednecks uh, in the woods um, at the same time that this group of young college kids are spending their vacation in the woods. And the college kids become convinced that Tucker and Dale, the two uh, rednecks, are the stereotypical crazed rednecks that are trying to kill them. But really freak accidents keep happening that cause the college kids to basically off themselves but it always looks like the rednecks did it wow and and so it's it, 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 there are some twists to it beyond that but it's basically a horror comedy that is riffing on and subverting the expectations that we have when we see redneck characters in cinema and so I, I wrote a thing about uh sort of the development of uh, the poor southern character from 2000 Maniacs to Tucker and Dale Evil. Nice.
0: Also, you didn't talk about, say, the Wrong Turn series, which I think also has a very similar idea to something like The Hills Have Eyes mm-hmm. and Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
1: Right.
0: Which, from what I've seen of them, I've not watched any of the films, I'll be honest with you. Part of the reason he didn't talk about them might be just because they are very derivative.
1: Yeah. well, That's the thing, is it's uh, you get to a point, especially with a certain type of horror movie where you're talking about a copy of a copy of a copy. Yes. And he did talk about Texas Chainsaw, you know, like, yes. and that is sort of the ultimate like, southern fried horror movie.
0: Yeah, I, I, I tell my students you, you should check out Ch- Texas Chainsaw Massacre and like, well, why would we watch that? It's made before and 1999.
1: Tell tell them to watch the 2003 version. uh, I
0: suppose. Darcy would like that.
1: I actually don't think it's terrible. It is not a bad movie. It's not as... It's not as... Iconic as the original. But it's not poorly made. It It is a pretty good movie.
0: Okay, I'm just not a fan of horror remakes. Although... I don't know why I'm complaining, considering I've watched several different versions of Love Story, and... (laughs) And, you know, I'll watch a uh, Ginger Rogers movie, um, The Bachelor Mother, and then I'll watch the musical remake from, like, 20 years later. Right. Uh, Bachelor Mother, pretty good movie. Ginger Rogers plays a shop girl who finds a baby on her doorstep and everybody assumes it's hers. Huh. And of course, this is back in the day where, you know, if you had a child out of wedlock, it was a huge flipping deal. Right. And everybody's trying to bend over backwards to help her raise this kid, and she's like, it's not my kid. I... Duh, duh. And, um... David Nevin plays the son of the department store's owner.
1: Interesting.
0: Who kind of fall, Well, basically falls for Ginger Rogers' character, but doesn't want to commit because she, he's like, oh, she's an unwed mother. She's a loose woman, I guess you would say. So there's a, that conflict there. And it's, it's a delightful film. I think... Oh, goodness. I believe the musical version has Debbie Reynolds. Okay. And the Ginger Rogers role.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was a time when, like, people didn't really bat an eye at remakes like that. Like, it wasn't that big a deal. I mean, there were three versions of the Maltese Falcon, and the most famous one was the third. Really? Yeah. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah. There are two prior versions of the Maltese Falcon before the one with Bogart. Okay, then.
0: I know Casino Royale was made as a TV, uh, special. Yeah. Bef- like a live TV play type thing. Yeah,
1: for the show Climax. Yeah. Um, with Peter Lorre as the villain. Nice. Um, they rewrote it to be American Agent Jimmy Bond. Ooh. Um and he meets up at the casino with his British counterpart, Clarence Leiter.
0: I forgot about Jimmy Bond.
1: Yep. <laughs> oh. It's actually, it's a pretty good adaptation. It's fairly faithful. Um, up to the end, the third act, they changed some things around because they could not have done the third act that was in the book.
0: No. Although it's interesting, we talk we talk about James Bond. One thing she pointed out to me, and while we're waiting in line, one of the contenders for James Bond when Sean Connery left was Burt Reynolds, who Joe Bob talked a lot about yeah, tonight. And
1: that would have been for *Live and Let Die*, which is very much in the sort of milieu of uh, of sort of southern car action movies.
0: Very much so. We. I don't think we really had a big... Well, okay, we did have one big car chase scene in Diamonds Are
1: Forever. Did all of... Wait, did all of the Bond films have big car chase scenes? Um, Goldeneye had... Or, not Goldeneye. Goldfinger had a gimmicked one. Okay, that's right. Because it was the gadgets. Yes. But it is a car chase.
0: You're right, it is. And... It's just not as dramatic as, say, like the ones and the one in Diamonds Are Forever, right?
1: And by the time you get to Live and Let Die, like it's not a car with gadgets. It's like the the spectacle is the stunts itself. Yes, because um, that's the movie that has the really insane. Uh, uh, I think it's actually a boat jump, but but there's some really crazy vehicle stunts in that movie.
0: Well, you, you have the scene in Diamonds Are Forever. Where the car drives up on two wheels yep. through an alley, yep. and they actually did that. Yeah, this is before CGI, guys. Of yeah. course, all of our most of our listeners are old farts. You know this, <laughs> uh, but but it was before CGI. They actually found a way to rig the car where it'll drive up on two wheels and did the stunt. Yeah, and it was a fairly complicated, fairly dangerous stunt
1: in reality. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, listen to the, uh, commentary on Live and Let Die, and, like, they are very upfront about, uh, the ways that people got hurt making that movie. Yeah. Uh, but,
0: back to Joe Bob for... Yeah. It was a really good show, um, guys, if he's coming to your area, look it up, how Rednecks save Hollywood. See if he's coming to your area anytime soon. Yeah, he
1: is still on tour. He's got a website that lists the remaining dates.
0: It was a great show and well worth your time. Yeah. They even carted in some Lone Star beer.
1: Yeah, which was great. It was. Uh, I-, I was actually impressed. I'd never had a Lone Star, um, but I uh, and I'm not usually much of a beer drinker, but I liked it.
0: Yeah, I'm more of a beer guy myself, and it was pretty good. It was, it's not like the best beer I've ever had, but nah. still...
1: I, I thought it was a step up from, say, like your Bud Lights or your cores or whatever.
0: Oh definitely.
1: It was more in the ballpark of like a blue moon.
0: Yeah. But again guys, if if Joe Bob comes to your area, go out and see him. Yeah. And if you can, tell him that Tomb of Ideas sent you.
1: Yeah. Because the drive-in will never die.
0: Alright you mutants. We'll go up, we're gonna go ahead and go to one more quick break. And then when we come back, we'll be talking to Roy Thomas. He bows to no man,
2: but to bring back his only love, he'll have to battle a god of darkness. Arnold Schwarzenegger is Conan the Destroyer, Saturday night at 10 on TNT's Monster Vision.
1: And we're back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. James and I are still out of the tomb and on the road, and we've just arrived at the Columbia Comic and Toy Con, where we are really pleased to be sitting down with our special guest, Roy Thomas, comic book writer and former editor. Um, he was editor-in-chief during the time when a lot of the horror and monster comics we're looking at were being developed. Tomb of Dracula, Werewolf by Night, Ghost Rider, stuff like that. So we just thought, since you're yeah. out and about, that uh, we would uh, ask you a few things about what was sure. going on at Marvel at that sure. time.
2: Okay, yeah. Well, that's what. what I don't do many podcast, you know, as a worth but uh, I thought, well, but, you know, it should do something because I had a lot to do with that particular period and I and, and everything. I don't talk about that as much as about some other things because I didn't I didn't write much of it. I didn't really want to write much of it. I, I just thought Marvel should do it, you know. Your sure.
0: Dracula stories are excellent.
2: Well, I, I like writing them because I love Dracula. You know, I read that when I was in high school and I enjoyed Thank you. I, I, I liked doing it. I loved adapting the novel, which is a fun thing. But then I had the one about the witch queen of New Orleans, and one with uh, Solomon Cain, one of the witch, witch trials in and, and Salem, and so forth, and you know, but, but I mean, unless I had some particular story I wanted to tell, I preferred to have the, not do it. I also plotted the first issue of Tomb of Dracula anonymously, yep. but too stupid to put my name on it, you know? <laughs> so I'd never get any residuals, you know? Right.
0: So um, <laughs> how did Marvel Horror get started? How did they decide that you're going to start? They were going to start doing monster books. Well, again?
2: the ba- the basic thing is that in around what was it, seventy one or so, uh, the code got changed. You know, as a result of just changing times and you know the, the Spider Man drug books pushed a little bit and just the changing times of people feeling you know that somehow I don't know people weren't really somehow afraid of, of vampires and werewolves and you know we weren't going to do really disgusting comics. You know, like some of the horror comics were. Uh, and DC felt the same way, so uh, they prevailed, I think, over the Archie people who weren't so interested at the time, to to change the comics code. So, and, and uh, all of a sudden, so as you've read the revised comic code, where all of a sudden you could use, you could do horror if you and vampires and werewolves, as long as you do them in this kind of literary tradition, you know, of works like Dracula, et cetera, that are taught in school. I mean, they were really putting the language in there to make to, to kind of protect themselves in case somebody complained why are you letting them write about werewolves and vampires and things and uh, by sheer coincidence that happened to be exactly the time that Stan decided I was going to write Spider-Man for four months because he was going to go off and do a um, screenplay with uh, the French uh, New Wave film director Alain René. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, you know, he was still in New York and he came in a little bit, but he, he didn't want to do any writing. So I wanted to write Fantastic Four. I, I didn't really ever want to write Spider-Man particularly. Uh, but he wanted me to write Spider-Man, so I wrote Spider-Man. And, and he wanted to, uh, actually, this was the first month we could. you could have a vampire villain. So he, he wanted to have, he said, so let's put a vampire in there. So I said, okay. So Gil Kane and I talked about oh, we were going to bring Dracula, and of course there was no Marvel Dracula comic at that time, nor had we ever discussed that there would be one. In fact, maybe it was Gil and me bring, bring it up that led Stan to think later that there should be a Dracula comic. I don't know, or maybe he had the idea anyway. But he said, "No," I says, "I want a I want a vampire. that's more like a supervillain or something," you know. So we made up. You know, so in that sense, Stan was sort of a crea- co-creator of Morbius because he said, you know, a, a vampire supervillain, and then. Um, Gil Kane and I went off and we co-plotted the story of uh, with Morbius, and uh, that's the only that's the only reason that I'm the co-creator of Morbius. And got a phone call the other week from London from uh, Jared Leto, who's playing Morbius in a movie, and he wanted right. to talk to the yeah. creator of the character, you know, about it. Not that I could tell him that much, but uh, sounds like they're sort of doing more or less the the version, you know, that. I mean, it sounds like you know. this sounds like it's going to be fairly faithful to the general idea of the comic. I, I yeah. saw
1: a list of characters, and it was very much people from those mm-hmm. early issues of the Morbius. They Comics. have
2: the of his that I made I up, so. I think, and yeah. uh, probably other characters that other people because I only and wrote the those other two scientist stories. that was involved. Yeah, yeah, I only wrote the first two stories with Gil. Then I turned it over to. I don't know, it was Doug Bunch, Don McGregor, different people were Did writing Did you it.
0: write that um, Marvel team-up t- um, follow-up to that story, or was that Conway?
2: No, I didn't write it. No, I never wrote well, Yeah, That was probably Jerry or Len Wein. Because okay. uh-huh. that one was sort yeah. of a
1: direct sequel to yours. Yeah. yeah,
2: but, well, Jerry and I were good friends at that time and Jerry so Ryan, forth, and, right. uh, you know, I was often handing things off to him. Like, you know, I'd plot the, like, the, plot the man thing story from, from my cover to Stan, but then I'd have Jerry write it. Or I plotted two of Dracula, number one, but I had Jerry write it. I... I, I made up, and my first and I co-plotted Werewolf by Night, the first story, but I gave it to Jerry to write, because I didn't really like writing horror stuff. I, you know, I had all the superheroes, and Jerry liked writing that stuff more. He and Len Wein and Marv Wolf, but and they'd done more of that at DC, and I really wasn't as interested in doing that at that yeah, time I, as, uh, as they were.
0: I think I read somewhere in another review that you really weren't a fan of horror growing up.
2: No, no, I never bought, any, um, I saw all the EC horror comics, I would kind of glanced them on the stands and years later remembers things and when I'd read in somebody, Otis, and you have the story where it's a takeoff on Kukla, Fran, and Ollie, or the one where uh, Frankenstein monster takes the place of the thing from another world buried in the Arctic and things like this, and he would say, well, I thought you said you'd ever I said, well, I saw them at the newsstand. I picked them up, glanced at them, put them down. I always, my parents wouldn't have stopped me from getting them. I was, you know, at that time, I was 11, 12, 13, 14 in the early 50s, but I just always felt they'd give me nightmares, and I didn't really like that kind of thing, you know, and so forth, and uh, so I never bought horror and crime comics. Crime comics, I just didn't like. The straight crime is not, do, does not pay. I just had no interest in that. Did you go in for any of the monster movies or anything? Oh, yeah, I love yeah. monster movies. I just didn't, you know, I went to horror movies. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, you know the Morbius is a swipe from a 1957 uh, movie called The Vampire, which was uh, about a guy who has a blood, gets a blood disease in which he, he has to drink blood and he becomes this kind of vampire monster. And it came, that came out a year after a movie from another studio called The Werewolf, which is another sort of non-traditional. Werewolf story, just like uh, I was a teenage werewolf. Oh, right. You know, a psychiatrist brings out the werewolf <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> thing. That means it's more of a science know, fiction. Yeah, all, it, it, and that's what I decided to do with. Uh, if it was going to be a supervillain vampire, the funny thing is the code. That really is not what the code allows. The code. You were supposed to have a real vampire, <laughs> and so you know, like like a Dracula or something like that, and making up a guy who just drinks blood. You know, who for a, a disease is really, you know, the code could have considered that as not coming under the guidelines. Mm -hmm. But they didn't. They accepted it without a whimper. Because, you know, we weren't really doing horrific things in it, so they let it go.
0: Um, Now, kind of related to that, you were involved in in early fandom a lot. Yes. Early comics fandom. Was there any kind of crossover back in the day between um, early comics fandom and horror fandom?
2: Some of the people probably liked it. They might have been EC fans if they were older and things like that. But not really. Most of the people that we were dealing with, the people who read Alter Ego in the early days when Jerry Bales and I started it, they were mostly superhero fans. But some of them liked horror. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think Jerry did, and I didn't particularly, but other people did.
1: Uh, Do you remember how the decision was made to start having the more traditional monster characters like Dracula and Werewolf show up in the superhero books and to have those crossovers? Because it it doesn't happen right away. It seems like Mm -hmm. for a while they're almost sort of
2: separate worlds. Yeah. Well... The thing, the original idea, of course, was to try to increase sales by reaching people maybe who didn't care much for superheroes, so let's make some monsters, and of course we did a few books that were just like, you know, our versions of the old timely, you know, horror comics and so forth, uh, but at the same time, what Marvel did best at that stage were really characters, that's what the readers really wanted, they weren't as in, you know, the, the anthology books. Never sold as well. I mean, I think uh, you know they, they did okay with House of Mystery and a couple of them at uh, at DC. And, but we never really were, We were just never equipped to kind of get into it. Stan was was busy with other things. I didn't have a lot of interest. We did okay for a little bit, but you know we didn't really. Our, I, most of us, our, our hearts weren't really in it. Maybe Archie Goodwin liked it. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people they just assumed we writing the heroes. And uh, I, I don't know. I don't know there was any conscious effort ever to keep them apart. It's just that it, it just was a gradual thing. We just sort of felt our way along with it. And, but I, I think we always had in mind to integrate the, the mere fact that Stan wanted to introduce the first vampire in Spider-Man. Right. Shows that he was interested in, in that kind of thing. Because it's funny,
1: like, we, we're sort of seeing a lot of these earlier issues for the first time doing mm-hmm. this show. Yeah. Um, and I always sort of thought of Dracula as an X-Men villain. Because with Claremont, <laughs> really? that, that that's sort of where I first encountered him. Yeah, of course was, I wouldn't uh, do that at all. I think he right. was a
2: solo character who very rarely met any other characters. Right. Uh, once in a while, I, I think him as getting you know he'd bite werewolf right by night. Right. But uh, yeah, but you're right. Of course we did we did have that. Uh, Len did that nice story. Len Wein did that nice story, the team up, giant sized team up with Spider Man and Dracula. I think where they don't ever meet though, yeah, on the right. same <laughs> ship. I thought right. that was nice. I had to write something about that for. Uh, an introduction to a hardcover reprint recently that I was looking at it and thinking, that's a nice gimmick. I remember Glenn came up with that. And, was and you
1: talked about the different kinds of monster books, like the anthologies versus the solo titles. And of what we've been reading so far, like mm-hmm. Man-Thing started out in an anthology um, and then showed up in a Kazar story and then showed up in Adventures into Fear yes. and then finally got a solo mm-hmm. title. Uh, yeah. Was that...
2: Well, Kazar showed up in that story. I mean, Man-Thing showed up in the Kazar issue mainly because... You know, Savage Tales number two was canceled, right. and we had this nice-looking story drawn by Neil, written by Len. Beautiful that, story. And you know, and, and really that was the one that came, that sort of codified based on hints of the first, but really codified the idea of fe- the fear. Right. And so that was basically your know, Lynn's thing. And we had this story sitting around. and we had to do something with it. You know, they didn't like wasting money on these things, so we had to use it. So I just I figured, well, okay, I, I was writing the Kazar book, so I stuck him in there, so that because I figured, well, you know, he's running around in jungles and he could run around in the swamps. So having Kazar, Kazar is a little offbeat for a superhero, and the Man Thing is a superhero. So it made sense to have them meet, and then I could get that story off the shelf by making right. that the middle of the the issue and so forth. You know,
0: I think it's also where we first met Thundra. Yeah. Uh, who later should have been Fantastic Four? Yeah, as a ro- pseudo romantic interest for Ben Grimm. even well, though- Thunder
2: start. No, Thunder's first appearance was in the Fantastic Four.
0: What's okay? But she because like, also- I know because
2: I made her up. Well, yeah, but and she, and she was, was introduced in Fantastic Four, the uh, one that John and Buscema and I did. But, she, later on, she went into other things.
0: But but they did have that Savage um, Tales number one story. Yeah, but
2: but but with the Femizons that yeah. Stan did, but. Any grafting of her under that was later on, she wasn't okay. made up She wasn't made up to be a Femazon. That was something that Jerry or somebody added okay. later. Okay. You know, see, I was a little uneasy. I would have been uneasy about doing this because I knew that, or at least I understood, I never talked to him about it much, that Stan had wanted to keep control of Femazons himself. And I actually heard that, I don't know, because later he let it be used. But in the early days, I heard that he didn't voucher that story because he didn't want to sign the contract, you know, the... On the back of the check that, <laughs> that his his uncle-in-law, whatever you know, uh, Martin Goodman would own it, and that I don't, I don't think he had John Marie to do that. I think Stan just wanted to get the whole thing himself. If that's if that's true, later on he relented and let the femazons right. be used. But I didn't create Thunder, uh, Thundra. Thunder was the jungle character, right? Yeah. Uh, I didn't create Thundra in order to uh, have her be a femazon. But okay. I don't think, particularly. I think that was. Probably Jerry or somebody, you know. All right. Or maybe I did. Maybe I'm wrong. But I, I, <laughs> I just want. I just. I was thinking of her as being Marvel's equivalent of people like Big Barda in the New Guys. Yeah, I just wanted to be yeah. a big. I thought, Jay, you know, there's a big. I said, I'm really going to do a big seven foot woman, and that'll be an interesting uh, character to uh, match up against the thing, you know. Yeah. And, and yeah. Um. And, and
1: so. Like we were saying, Man-Thing was an anthology initially. in yeah. uh, Savage and,
2: Tales one, Right.
1: right. And uh, and Werewolf and Ghost Rider started in Spotlight uh, mm-hmm. before getting their own books. Yeah. But then Dracula and Frankenstein sort of went straight to solo titles. Ha- what was the formula for deciding there, who got what? There was no what?
2: formula. Whatever was around, <laughs> we had these titles. Okay. And some, sometimes Stan would want to start them. He might start with a, a new... And say, you know, that after a few issues we'll take them out. Others he had maybe more faith in, so like with Tomb of Dracula, so he just wanted to go right for the jugular. And of course the (laughs) name Tomb of Dracula was because you can't trademark Dracula, but you could at least trademark Tomb of Dracula so nobody could use that exact title. Right. You know, and Um, that's all. Sort of related to the popularity. I don't think there was much system in it, really.
0: (laughs) Sort of related to the popularity of these books, I heard an urban legend. Maybe you can confirm this is true. Uh, is it true that Hank McCoy gained his blue bouncing beast form because Werewolf by Night was popular, and they thought maybe he'll, yeah. he thought maybe he'd work as a yeah. hairy character? Yeah.
2: I don't. I don't know if it was. Look, Werewolf by Night did sell pretty well in those early days, so there 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 was probably at least some connection, or at least the idea of, if not ex- specifically to Werewolf, at least the idea of making him look a little more like a horror character. Because you know the X-Men hadn't been, you know, had never been a top-selling book, so here was a chance to uh, try something a little different. I have this feeling that it may have been Stan's idea to do that. Uh, I'm not sure. And this you know. would have
1: been around the time he was shifting to being an Avenger, so to give mm-hmm. him a new look would sort mm-hmm. of
2: refresh the character. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I suppose. Again, you know, I, I don't remember. You know, some things I remember better than others, and I don't remember that much about this. Except yeah. I just have this feeling that Stan, that it may have been Stan's idea. You know, I don't know if okay. Steve knows. Steve Englehart knows. He, of course, ended up writing those yep. stories. Sorry, just a personal favorite of no, mine. No, no, so. it was an interesting thing. I, you know, uh, it, it wasn't something I it, it, I don't, I, I can't, I just I just don't see myself as thinking of that approach. I, when I wanted to bring the X-Men back, I wanted to keep them more the way they were. I was never that wild about that approach to it. So I, therefore, I suspect it probably wasn't my idea, <laughs> okay. and that was probably Stan's, you know, okay. and everything. But you know, but I went along with it, so we, you know, and, and it worked out okay.
0: Well, we need to correct the internet then, because they say it was you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could have been. I just don't know.
2: I just, I just don't think so. I just don't really remember.
1: Um, and so these things sort of go in cycles. But that particular resurgence of horror comics yeah. kind of fizzled out by the end of the decade. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any I, do you have any idea why that was or?
2: No, I, I just think that, you know, Marvel's readers liked superheroes, and they weren't mm-hmm. as interested in the monsters, and they were okay for a while, but as... But, you know, eventually we were asking people to spend a lot of mo- lot more money for but the books. Because we, We've certainly noticed, going from month to month, the number of titles yeah, it increases just, a lot. it just got to be ridiculous, and one of the reasons <laughs> that, you know, that that job changed people so often, uh, myself and others, you know, and so forth. It just got to be a ridiculous uh, job, especially because... At that time, I'm not saying I was pushing for it, but nobody was suggesting, you know, uh, hiring more people with more editorial authority. They wanted to get little assistant editors and have one editor or so, you know, and right. everything. Uh, it was probably time when, when Shooter did that. It was probably time to get to to break things up a little bit. I, I don't think Stan or I would have liked that idea that much because we we saw DC get so uh, segmented and so mm-hmm. forth, and uh, I don't think we were that eager to see that happen to Marvel exactly. Right. Uh, but it was probably time by a certain stage.
0: Um, so this is a little bit off-topic, but we, we just saw the announcement about you working on a new Invaders comic with um, Jerry Ordway. What can you tell us about it?
2: Well, I, I, I think uh, a little. Basically, they asked me to do a special of some kind. It could have been an Avenger or something. I said, I'd really rather do the Invaders. And then I ended up with a plot that is actually pre-Invaders, because it's before they actually get together. I was gonna. I was thinking about doing one set in the Battle of the Bulge, and I'd begun to work out in that. And then I said, no, I don't really want to get involved in that whole battle thing. I'd rather have one set before they meet. And uh, so I set it in 1941. And so I started thinking, well, what happened? What happened in that period? So I started looking through one of my books, uh, you know, of uh, timelines and things. And I discovered that in in uh, in March, strangely enough, in March of '41, with uh, virtually, in, I mean, with U-boats all over, even though we weren't at war yet, but you know, uh, that FDR actually went on his yacht, the presidential yacht, the Potomac, from out sail out from Florida, where I guess he went by train, out into the Bahamas for on a fishing trip with several members of the cabinet wow. and his assistant. Harry Hopkins and things like this. I mean, it was two or three cabinet members, you know, too. Huh. And, and I mean, you know, a, a U-boat mistaken for, you know, for something or, or just or whatever. I, 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 it's amazing. I mean, they had a couple destroyers around, but it was still, you know, weird. It's the last thing he t- thing he did like that in there. Huh. And at the same time, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. It's gives a, you know a chance to. I've I've done a lot of stories where Roosevelt gets in peril from the Nazis or whatever. Right. But I think, well, I'll just do another one. It's uh, you know, and then. Uh, because I, I like tying things around historical things. If I'm, gonna go, if, if I'm only going to do maybe one of these, who knows if I'll do anything else, I figure I may as well make it a little significant. And then I thought, to looking, well, what was happening in the Bahamas? And, I, and then I realized and remembered that during that period, the Duke of Windsor, the, the farmer King Edward, uh, yes, the one right. who had to abdicate because yeah. of his marriage, they kind of uh,
0: shucked him off out there. They shucked
2: him. He became like the what major general. He was in charge. They sent him off to the Bahamas, Bermuda, be in, I think, wasn't it? Uh, Nassau. Oh, Nassau, Nassau. Just that the, makes which sense. is the Bahamas. Right, oh, right. They sent him off there because they wanted to get him out of Europe because you know he's the guy that Hitler wanted on the throne. Right. Not, you yeah. know. So I thought, well, but, you know, now, now FDR had met with the Duke of Windsor a number of times before, and always worked on avoiding discussing politics, but. And they and you know he didn't really go to Nassau on this trip during these this uh, eight or ten days he was out there. But I figured, well, you know, that maybe they just don't know that he was there. Right, that. right. So so I, you know, just because Life magazine didn't report it, doesn't mean it didn't happen. So so I, I saw a chance to get this, and, and the fact that the Duke of Windsor was known to have certain Germanic, if not quite maybe Nazi leanings, or at least was. You know, right. Friendlier toward them, yeah. you know, uh, and everything. So I came up with the idea that uh, maybe Hitler's decided maybe it's time to, to grab him up from there and bring him back to Europe and, you know, and so forth. Because there was still a time at that time, Operation Sea Lion, which was the impending invasion of England, mm-hmm. had not yet been. Officially canceled because Hitler hadn't yet invaded uh, Russia, even though he was planning to. Which, mm-hmm. so I figured, there's a lot of history behind it, even if I don't mention it. So I just thought that would make an interesting background for story. And then uh, the uh, editor, Tom Revort accepted the general idea and uh, said, uh, "Ask if I had a artist." Well, I was pleased because when I had done work for Dark arts on Conan things, I never had any kind of say or even input into the artist. I wasn't happy with that, and. Uh, you know, because I'd been used to being writer and editor. I mean, you know, like with Conan, I did the first, wrote and at the first, you know, 100 or so issues, you know, 100 plus issues. Chose the first several artists. That worked out okay. So I... You know, I like to, you know, to uh, be involved in the books that I do. So when he asked me, I, and I started before I even had a chance to think about it, my wife said, "Well, what about Jerry Ordway?" <laughs> said, and, I, and as soon as I thought of Jerry, the only other person that I would have probably considered that would, would have been around until recently would have been a guy like Buckler, who also worked on All Star Squadron. And here's Jerry, with whom I worked on uh, All Star Squadron, who had been doing stuff in the '40s. Right. Also, it had to be somebody who worked what what they then called, it's no longer, Marvel style or whatever, right. you know, because I, I, you know, I could write a script in advance. I, I wrote Spider-Man for 18 years as huh. a newspaper strip. That was all, you know, script, you know, several panels a day and a few other things here there. I just didn't want to. I I did, the work I did, my best work, the most, more important work insofar as comics can be important, uh, was all done that way. And I wanted to continue that way. And if they didn't want me to work that way, then I just... I, I don't have to write any more comic books. There's, no, there's nothing, in, you know, in my life contract that says I have to write one more comic book. So, uh, and they said, well, that's okay, but a lot of these artists can't work that way anymore. I said, well, they should learn to be storytellers. <laughs> I said, I, I'm not going to tell them. I, I think the best stuff is, you know, that was done that way. I mean, when, when guys, you know, and Jack Kirby and Ditko, they could all learn to do it. Don Heck could learn to do it. John Musilma had never done it before and he started doing it. He got to really liking it. Ramita these guys could learn it if you if you push them but i said then I'll, if they want me to work with somebody i've already worked with or that can do that so i said how about jerry and uh eventually he got chosen at one time i think he was just going to ink it but then uh he ended up becoming i'm delighted that he became i haven't seen any of the work <laughs> except the cover right uh there were two covers you know two all he did one of them the other one has the torch and some also is based on a gil kane invaders cover from the 70s but very nice and uh, so basically, that's it. Now I'm just waiting to see the pages, you know, and I don't know if I'll get all 30 at once or will I, and how finished they'll be. If Jerry's going to ink them, maybe they'll be, you know, won't be too detailed. That's between him and the editor at this stage.
1: Well, we're really excited about really? the creation. Yeah. It's, it's just, a great. I just thought it'd be fun pairing. to do
2: that. And then when I got a chance to do that and a, a two part Conan story, I thought that was fine. You know? And how does
1: it feel to be back with this team that you put together back in the late 60s? Uh, the what? event, the Invaders. The Invaders. Oh, the 70s.
2: I made up the Invaders when I left uh, being editor in chief. Right. I, I wanted a new assignment that would keep me out of the Marvel mainstream, huh. you know. With, besides Conan and so forth, and I thought, well, if I set him in World War II, huh. I won't have to. Com- I don't have to confer with people about what Captain America is doing in his own book because right. this is first. You know,
1: he still managed to work in a vampire
2: too. And I, well, yeah,
1: <laughs> I worked, you know, yeah. A
2: lot of lot of those guys. Yeah, I had you know, Don Glute uh, who had done. Many, many things with Frankenstein did that story. You know, I, of course, I had done X-Men meet Frankenstein Yes, earlier. you did. We covered it on the show. And uh, I think they've now said that wasn't the real Frankenstein monster or something. He was but, a robot at the end of the issue. Yeah. Which was well, really I had really always loved, loved involved, because yeah. this was about horror, I had always loved that story in, was it Detective Comics, a Batman story, which has the uh, the true story of Frankenstein. Mm. You know, It was in the late 40s, or, or maybe 40s, okay. 40, 48, 50. And, it, and, it, and he goes back in time, you know, that he was always going back in time, that professor would hypnotize him and Dick Grayson to go back into time, and uh, Professor Nichols. And... Uh and in this case, they end up and Mary Shelley's there, and there's this big guy who ends up being becoming the model for the Frankenstein monster huh. and so forth. And I like that kind of thing. And plus, one of my favorite movies is Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Oh yeah. So I figured this would be fun. The X-Men Meet Frankenstein. So, <laughs> and, and there's some hidden in that story of the uh, of that of the X, of the uh, EC story, I forget whether it was encrypt or whichever. In which the Frankenstein monsters discovered, uh, frozen of the North Pole, mm. which was really more of a takeoff on the Thing from Another World movie that had come right. out a few okay. months earlier. But instead of having it be an alien discovered their frozen, they had it be the Frankenstein monster who had last been seen in those parts. Right. You're- so, so that was a yeah. I remember Graham Ingalls drew that. That was so. I and I I, I used that as a little bit of the inspiration for the. Uh, the X Men story. That's too, true You know,
0: and Gary Friedrich used the same kind of spur for his own Frankenstein story yeah. later in the Marvel horror. The Monster of Frankenstein yeah. opens yeah. with yeah. him frozen. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. I wanted to. I wanted to do that myself. I wanted to adapt the Frankenstein novel myself, and I would have probably done it even longer, but I right. just didn't have time. And Gary did a really good job. He and Mike. That's moved gorgeous. Together. We, we just covered
1: those first few issues. That yeah, we, that yeah. retell the novel. Yeah, he and did a good we job. I away. told him.
2: I just told him, you know, just, just, you know, be very faithful to the novel. He, you know, he'd read it. He liked it. We were, you know, good friends. So he went off and did it. And, you know, it, it worked very well. I, I wish he had maybe even made a little longer, but I didn't. Huh. But that was, But I don't think I told him necessarily, you know, how many issues to make it. We had the same I, thought know, that when we were reviewing it, though, mm-hmm. we were like, this yeah. But he and Plug made a good there, team. There were there. sections that were a little condensed. Plug always said, you always have me doing the hairy guys. <laughs> the, the, the man thing looks hairy, and the werewolf is hairy, and you know, the Frankenstein. He has monster. that shaggy vest. Yeah. So he says, you always have me doing the hairy guys. He says. Huh. You know, that's um, funny. Yeah, we've really fallen in love with
0: Mike Blue doing this show. We, yeah. At first, we're like, "Oh, he's kind of cartoony," but didn't realize—wait, his composition is
1: fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the like, the transformations for the monster characters are just
2: mm-hmm. so so great. Yeah, now yeah, he was—he was, he was uh, you know, just worked out perfectly. He just happened to come wandering in not too long before we did this with a with a few pages of a western idea. And, I, and I, you know, He and I wanted to develop it together, and so I just, you know, but. Stan wasn't interested in doing a western, so we did anything for him right at that moment. But very shortly thereafter, when when I came up with the idea, you know, which I called "I Werewolf," you know, as you probably know, yeah, that was my title. Stan wanted, didn't he wanted to call it "Werewolf by Night," and I didn't care as long right. as I, wa- I wanted it told in first person. That was right. the, the, the and that's a really that striking
1: thing on those first few issues. Is yeah, the first I don't know person. why
2: I wanted it. I just. <laughs> came up with this thing I Werewolf and the idea of first person narration and I, I, I told Jerry you know too that's how I want it done because you know we did, Marvel didn't have any books like that right. at the time
0: I think you were a good um, influence on Stan for some of those Marvel titles because for instance he wanted to do that um, Satan series where Satan was the main character oh, yeah, and I think yeah. you <laughs> said maybe maybe make him the son of
2: Satan yeah well I, I knew that it was you know Having a book in which Satan was the main character, even as a villain, would not have been. I just felt like it might get us in trouble. I didn't really want to see it myself. I'm not a religious person, but I just didn't like the idea. So I talked him into the son of Satan. Only later realized that my old fan friend, Bill Joe White, who had. uh, worked with an alter ego and so he actually done a character that looks a lot like that called Son of Satan in a one story in a fancy and and if you look at it, he looks a lot like him, although I don't know how much of that's coincidence because I don't know how much I told him, you know, how he looked. Except that I wanted him to have a trident, which the original Bill Joe White son has, too. But, of course, these are kind of inevitable things, too. Yeah, anyway. if
1: you're borrowing from sort of mythological yeah, yeah. appearances.
2: Uh, so I, so I, I got in touch with Bill and, and apologized for accident. It wasn't like it was copyrighted, really. He had done this one story, probably wasn't even copyrighted. And he understood. I said, it was subconscious, you know, whatever. But uh, at the time, I was just desperate to get Stan away from the mark of Satan, which was <laughs> going to be his title. No, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, well, but, but once in a while we did, you know, like it wasn't exactly horror, but you know, like the time when I when he won a new uh, series for Strange Tales to revive it, and he so he said think of another thing, something that wasn't you know another werewolf, another this and that and that, you know, so I stuck my head in some meeting he was having, and what he tells I said, uh, and I just came, had the name of a character I had made up, not a horror character, but when I was a kid, Doctor Voodoo. That was a yeah. character I had made up, and. And Stan just thought about it for seconds. No, Brother Voodoo. I mean, he, was, he was a good editor, Stan. He, he saw the thing, and right away his mind processed it and figured out that Brother Voodoo was a much better because we had Doctor Strange, that Brother Voodoo was good. And then I went off and gave it to land who did. I've most always of the liked
1: work. that character. And mm-hmm. it's funny because then, uh, just, I don't know. What ten years? Five ten years ago, he was Doctor Voodoo. Yeah, fellow. I worked. Yeah, I
2: worked. I worked on that one book where he sort of became. But no. But when they did that, they didn't know that that Doctor Voodoo, that Brother Voodoo, had been Doctor Voodoo when originally uh, suggested for three seconds. That's, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, but, but you know, uh, it, it, it was just that Stan wanted to get going on this. He, he had always wanted to kind of compete with you know creepy and eerie. So we had the black and white. But he, he said, why not even do it in the color comics and see if we can get people. And uh, we. You know, so, and we worked pretty well together, you know, as a team. I mean, he was the, you know, there was no doubt about who was in charge, but he, <laughs> but, you know, he, he was happy. I, I think that some of the ideas, like, uh, I think the Living Mummy was probably, you know, mine. I've always wondered if War he- as Hell is. I'm not sure about t- Tiger the Werewolf. Certainly, I, did. If I if I did have anything to do with some of these, it was usually just the name or a vague concept. And was
1: Legion of Monsters after your time?
2: Legion of Monsters was, yeah, I I was just, uh, at that stage, I was just, you know, doing the Dracula adaptation. But I had nothing to do with that concept or the name of the book.
0: Something I ever kind of realized, like when I was doing research for our interview, um, you're the guy
2: who made Marvel hip, you, you, which is you, funny because I'm not very hip. <laughs> I, I never was. Well, you're the
0: first person to start bringing, like, you know, modern song lyrics into the dialogue and titles. Well, Stan and
2: wasn't going to do it. Yeah. At, no. least I, at least I was. At least I was a fan of Bob Dylan and the Beatles right. and things like that. Stan, you know didn't really know that stuff at all.
0: You're also the one who brought in a lot of young creators um, well, into yeah. the bullpen. Like. Well, the
2: old creators are all dying off. And, and, but, you know, yeah, it, it was the thing was starting to open up. It hadn't been opened before. I was one of the early people to start coming in, you know. And but, but but then it began to open up and you had all these people just ready to rush in. All you had to do was kind of, you know, see what was... A lot of them came in by way of working first at D.C. Mm-hmm. And then when D.C. has got a glut of horror stuff, Mm-hmm. What you call horror mystery stuff? Right. Yeah. They all saw, showed up on my doorstep. All I had to do was hire Len Wein and Jerry Conway and Marv Wolf and guys like that. I didn't have to even trade them. You know, they. <laughs> you know, it was really. It was, what was it the first so Friday well. event? Well, that was an idea. It started somebody, John Benson, uh, who's an early fan. A couple of these people got together with this idea that that what you know once a month to have a mixture of not just fans as such but you know the real real devoted fans who were really interested and knew the pros and you know and you know a serious type of thing and maybe mixed with some of the professionals who might want to come because you know they knew a lot of them and so forth and i what happened is uh, uh i at the beginning i volunteered my apartment up on East 87th Street that I had there. You know, I, I was happy to have, some, or somebody suggested, you know, would I mind having it in my apartment? Because there weren't that many people who lived in Manhattan, as mm-hmm. such, you know, who, and I did. I was sharing this apartment that uh, my official roommate was Gary Friedrich, but he was spending most of his time and his future uh, second wife out of his five. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and Bill Everett was, not on the lease, but he was there off and on. So, you know, so we started having them, and we had them there, and then Bill, I think Bill Pearson and other people took them over later, and, uh, you know, J- Jeff Jones, when he was married to Weezy, and people like that later on. But I, I, so I just did it because it was convenient, you know, for a while. Okay. All right. And they called it First Friday because that was just the easy way to remember. It was the first Friday of the month for a while. Later, of course, I think it changed to other things. Right. Then I started hosting again when I lived up in... Uh, He stayed Sixth Street until a couple of people sort of came along with other people and swiped several of like you know Uh, Golden Age comics, and then I stopped having those at my apartment. You know, one of the I think one of them was the last pre-Robin Batman story and things like that. You know, of course I'd have sold them long since, but those people actually stole many thousands of dollars worth of stuff that night. Right. At the time was worth maybe a couple hundred or so. You know. Wow. But so that was the end of my being a host, uh, uh, but uh, the second time, but. Other than that, I was willing to go to other people's places that they wanted to have stuff stolen. Yeah. It was okay with me. You know?
1: Well, anyway. we really appreciate okay. you taking this time with us today. Sure, very much so. It's been great. Yeah. I mean,
2: there's a lot to cover, but yeah, you absolutely got the main stuff and everything.
1: Yeah, and uh, and maybe some other time, if we're at the same event, we yeah. can check in again. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. Okay.
2: Well, thank you very much.
1: And- thank you. What secret,
2: what evil, what force draws them?
1: The
2: keep. What at this place? <gasps>
1: what I saw wasn't real. Ah! You're part of this. I am the watchman. Ah! I have come to destroy him. The keep restarts Starts Friday at the Factoria Cinemas, Grand Cinema's Alderwood, Lewis and Clark, and Kent Sixon. That was a really good interview. I know, right?
0: I was, I, 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 I'm really happy with how that went.
1: Roy is a very nice guy, and it was uh, really sweet of him to make time for us like that.
0: Really, really great of him. Definitely, uh, if you ever have a chance to see him at a show, re- really recommend saying hello. And tell him to invite you to send you. Uh, now, Trey, what did you get there at the con?
1: Oh, well, I was browsing some, uh, some long boxes of back issues. And I found this uh, this Dracula magazine.
0: That's that's Dracula Lives number 2. Yeah? I've read that for the show.
1: Oh. Well, was I supposed to have done that? I mean, you want to talk about it? I mean, I can flip through it real quick, and and we can bluff our way through this thing. Okay. So, yeah, this is another
0: one of these horror magazines where you get multiple kind of anthology-style tales In one mag, it was 75 cents. Uh, We've covered the last issue, I think, a couple episodes ago.
1: Yep, it's uh, usually filled out with some reprints to hit the right length. Yeah. Um, Mostly black and white, a few splashes of color here and there for emphasis.
0: Yeah, Uh, mostly red.
1: Yep, yep, given that it's a vampire book. And, uh, And the cover stories on this one are a special origin story, The Birth of Count Dracula... And um, Midnight in Mysterious New Orleans, The Vampire and the Voodoo Woman.
0: Yeah, There's actually a, n- a few other original stories in there as yeah, well. Yeah,
1: those, those are just the ones on the cover.
0: Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, the first one, uh, That Dracula May Live Again, is a uh, story by Marv Wolfman, uh, art by Neil Adams, um, Archie Goodwin's spiritual advisor. Uh, basically, we start out in 1459... In Transylvania, uh, a character that we know is Vladimir but was never called such in the comic uh, is fighting the Moors, they're called the um, Eastern Hordes, but they're basically the Turkish Empire and they're fighting and Dracula is wounded in battle and the Turks take him prisoner and the big the big Turkish like leader guy, takes them back to Castle Trans- Transylvania and says he's going to make him his puppet. Like, he's going to be a, a puppet for the Turkish Empire uh, because the people of Transylvania already fear him. Uh, but on the way, they take him to an old gypsy woman so that uh, she could heal his wounds. And she's like, of course, of course, I healed Dracula for you. Just go away, go away. And of course, once they go away, the old gypsy woman is revealed as like being a vampire. Okay. And she bites Dracula and, of course, he becomes a vampire. And then, of course, he takes them back to Castle um, Dracula. And he's, the, the Turkish leader guy has taken uh, Dracula's wife and son hostage. And they're threatening to kill them. And um, during this threat, the Turkish leader accidentally kills Dracula's wife. And that awakens the blood rage. And, like, Dracula snaps his chains and kills the Turkish guards. And then he feeds on the Turkish leader himself and kills the rest of the guards. He drops his son off with the gypsies and... I swear upon your grave, darling Maria, that none who walk this world shall again be safe. This world took you from me, and now all the world shall pay. So swears, Dracula. And that's the end of the issue.
1: Yeah. Um, first, first things first. That Neil Adams art is gorgeous.
0: It is really, really good artwork.
1: Like, black and white, Neil Adams, Dracula art. It is detailed. It is pretty. It is violent. Mm -hmm. Um, It's perfect for this kind of historical story.
0: Really good. Like, even the tone. I I don't know if we call it the toning, or... It looks almost 3D. Yeah. The way Neil Adams does it. It's really great.
1: Yeah, really good use of perspective, especially, like, early on in the battle scenes. Um, Where it really does feel kind of like a historical war comic more than a horror comic.
0: Yeah. I really like Dracula's big um, winged helmet. Yep. It's different enough, though, from, like, Thor's winged helmet that it's not derivative.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, Also, I really like the uh, splash page with uh, sort of classic vampire Dracula uh, and the title that Dracula may live again around him. It's kind of like the Marvel horror version of... Like, the classic Batman logo. Yeah, you're right, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Which, Neil Adams. <laughs> of
0: course.
1: But yeah, now, content-wise, you can feel in the story them experimenting with the freedom that the magazine format offers. Yeah. To varying degrees of success. Like, yeah, they they go a lot further sometimes in ways that maybe they shouldn't have.
0: Yeah, there's... There is a lot of implied or just outright stated rape in this magazine.
1: Yeah. Well, and Dracula's wife basically exists in the story to create the tragedy of Dracula's origin. Yes. Which is an unfortunate trope that has sort of continued throughout comics. Yeah, she is
0: the girl in the refrigerator here.
1: Yeah. Oh, God, I'm I'm looking through the book again. I'm seeing, like,
0: this gorgeous gypsy woman. Yeah. Like the wrinkles of the face and then she just opens up her mouth and there's these fangs. Neil Adams. Damn, man. Yep. Um,
1: and, and of course, because the baby survives, this is, this definitely works as an origin story for Marvel's Dracula. Yes. Because we now have a, a bloodline.
0: Yep. Yep. I was really almost expecting him to give into his bloodlust and feed on Maria Mm. at a point there. And that would be part of the tragedy of Dracula. And
1: and the regret and shame of that would carry over. Yes. Yeah.
0: Uh, It's a fun story.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, problematic at times in the way that the magazine stories of this era can be. Because they suddenly have way more freedom than they know what to do with, content-wise.
0: Yeah, I I honestly think it might be my favorite Marv Wolfman Dracula story that we've read yet.
1: I I think you're right. And, and of course, we're going to get a lot more Marv Wolfman. But yeah. But, but, yeah, of what we've seen so far, for one thing, it's nice that it has a clear beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. Um, it's not tied to an ongoing narrative, and because of that, you get a very clear arc for the title character.
0: Yeah. So, there's an editorial in here. Um, it's not really worth mentioning. It just states, welcome back to the magazine.
1: They do advertise the upcoming Tales of the Zombie, which is nice.
0: Yeah. And that won't be the last time we' talk about zombies in this for this comic I don't think right
1: oh yeah because uh, well we'll get there
0: <laughs> yeah i the, the the thing I like the most about the editorial uh, is the little joke about the editorial on the next page in the in the little comic part oh yeah I th- had thought the master's first tale grasp your attention span a bit longer than oh the editorial broke the spell did it it figures. <laughs>
1: Which, I mean, fair. Yeah. Um, so, the next one, I think, is a reprint. Yeah. Vampires Drink Deep. We can probably skim right through that.
0: Yeah, there, there's vampires, and they're drinking deep, so that works.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it is very much an older anthology horror story. Yeah. And then we've
0: got a Chris Claremont story. Now, this is early on in Chris Claremont's career, where, you know, he's basically a gopher in the office at this point. Yeah. Um, It's called, Who is Brom Stoker and Why is He Saying Those Terrible Things About Me? And it reports to be from an actual manuscript written by Dracula countering Jonathan Harker and Brom Stoker's version of events of the novel. There's not really much to say here. It's just basically, you know, what they said was not true. I'm not a vampire. I'm really a nice nice man that they took advantage of, and that's pretty much it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I guess what's fascinating about it, besides the fact that it's by Claremont, um, is it's a prose piece. Yes. Um, It's entirely uh, prose with some photos from Dracula movies uh, sort of worked in. Mm -hmm. Um, But as a prose piece, it sort of takes the form of um, an epistolary story. So, yes. it, so it's told through, like, letters and memos, um, which is how the original novel Dracula is written, is its, in, it's epistolary. Uh-huh. So if you, if you go back and read the original novel, that's all it is, is a collection of letters and diary entries and recordings. Um, and so it's kind of neat that Claremont is sort of reconstructing that structure. like He's, he's redoing that that style of storytelling to sort of do the, the subversive version of it.
0: Yeah. And the one of the more interesting parts here is they talk about... There's a little article snippet that says the two magazine editors who had discovered his manuscript were found dead in their car on the Borgo Pass. Right. Which is a fun little bit.
1: Um, and that Bu- the government in Bucharest has summoned Rachel Van Helsing from London to advise and assist. Yeah! So,
0: basically, this is in canon... For Tomb of Dracula. For Tomb of Dracula, yeah. Because even in the original letter, they say, like Drake Drake said in his letter, this place is pretty well gutted by the fire. Right. So, yeah, they're, they're talking about Frank Drake there. Yep. So, apparently, Frank Drake is telling people about his encounters, and they're sending Vault of Terror magazine guys
1: out. Yeah, I guess so. Must have been dangerous to work for Marvel back in the day. Was Vault of Terror Marvel? Oh, no, I guess not. That one would be... Who, who, who released Vault of Terror? Was it EC or Charlton? Um, Vault of Terror. Maybe it's
0: just a fictional magazine.
1: Vault of Horror was an EC Comics title. Mm-hmm. Vault of Terror, I think, might be made up. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was just made up. I think they're just riffing on the EC titles. Okay, that makes sense. Now,
0: our next story in here... Uh,
1: the next one is a Steve Gerber story.
0: Yeah, Dracula versus Nazis.
1: Well, it's plotted by Gerber, scripted by Tony Isabella. Right. Uh, and then uh, Jim Starlin did layouts, and Sid Shores did the rest of the art. Yeah. Um, and this one's an interesting one. Yeah. Um, so it's um, set during uh, World War II, mm-hmm. um, mid 40s. Yeah. Um, and a castle in Transylvania. Yes. Uh, Is serving as the headquarters for a group of Nazi officers. Mm Mm-hmm. And they sort of become aware of the fact that it seems to be Castle Dracula. There are portraits that are very clearly of Dracula. Um, And over the course of their stay, they are um, incredibly violent toward the local Romani population. Yes. Um, And... Increasingly violent. Mm -hmm. Uh, And meanwhile at night, a vampire appears to be targeting uh, everyone. Yes. Uh, Particularly Nazis, but I think the implication is that maybe also some of the Romani. Yes. Um, And the, the leader of the Nazis in this castle becomes convinced that the vampire must be one of this Romani population because in the original Dracula story... The so-called gypsies worked with Dracula and assisted him in getting his coffin to and from the castle. Yes, <clears throat> and so, and so at that point, uh, they the Nazis just begin massacring everyone,
0: as Nazis are wont to do. Right,
1: it is very unpleasant and massacring like with wooden stakes and such because you got to kill the vampire. It's unpleasant, and the sort of twist ending is that the second in command of the Nazis ultimately finds that his commanding officer is actually the vampire. Uh, Hauptmann Chris, I think, is his name. Yeah. Uh, and, and so the, the second-in-command stakes the, the vampire Nazi um, and suggests that maybe the officer never even realized he was a vampire, that somehow the sort of spirit of Dracula was manipulating him or something. Um, and then the Nazis move on from the castle. And that's sort of the end of it. And so it doesn't really have the direct tie to the Dracula narrative that the first story did. But it, it's still kind of a one-and-done kind of thing. What did you think of this one?
0: Uh, it's it's weird. Yeah. Like, it had a great setup and, you know, the the kind of whodunit nature of the story. Even though we see at the beginning what we at least believe is Dracula. Right. But
1: and he and the vampire is kept entirely in shadow up until like the last page.
0: Yes. But like Chris in here, he's a bald man. Mm-hmm. The the vampire on the last page has hair. Yeah. Like what I'm getting from this is that Chris was inhabited by, like, the spirit or ghost of Dracula. It's more
1: of a possession story.
0: It's more of a possession story, and Dracula's using his body just to kill the officers in the castle while he sleeps within the castle. Yeah. It's a weird, weird ending.
1: Yeah. It kind of... And, and it's it's a weird story because there's no hero. No. Like, all of your characters... You have the Romani characters, but they all get killed. Right. So all you're left with are Nazis and vampire Nazis. And I don't want to make that choice. <laughs> Although, I kind of want to see this movie. Well, here's the thing. It reminds me of um, a, a movie called The Keep. It's based on a book series. but but um, And it's about a group of Nazis that take over this old castle that's inhabited by an evil spirit. Um, and, and it sort of turns out that The Keep was not built to, like, protect you from outsiders, it was built to keep something inside. Ah. And, and so the horror sort of comes from there. So, it, it, like, the, the initial premise of the Nazis occupying a castle that contains an evil that they don't understand, um, that felt very much like The Keep. Um, but, yeah, I, I would kind of... I would not mind watching some sort of, like, vampire-slasher movie hybrid where the victims are Nazis. Yeah. I, I'd be okay with that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, if you should punch a Nazi, I mean, it makes sense that in a film you should rip the throats off Nazis.
1: Just so long as you don't create more Nazi vampires. <laughs> That's that, a, Yeah. That seems like a, a danger there. Yeah. We're getting into sort of the the Kim Newman and Dracula territory there. Oh, Kim Newman. <laughs> uh,
0: so, yeah, I thought it was an okay story. It it just has a very weird ending. We get an ad for Vampire Tales on the on the next page, right? Um, starring Morbius.
1: Yep. Looking forward to that one. Uh, it's well. sort of a sister mag because that's also a magazine, right?
0: Yeah, it's also a magazine. Yeah. So we but, don't we don't have to talk about this, Trey. We we've escaped from the Tomb of oh, Ideas. Yes. We don't have to cover this anymore. So don't worry about
1: that. And we, let's see, we've got another reprint. Got Stan Lee reprint there. Skipping over that. Sorry, Stan. Um. Oh, new story, and yeah. oh, we just talked to that guy.
0: Yes, um, it's The Voodoo Queen of New Orleans, story by Roy Thomas, art by Gene Cullen, and Dick Giordano.
1: Yeah, and so this one is, uh, as the title suggests, uh, set in New Orleans. It opens with like a tour of the uh, above-ground crypts. Mm-hmm. Um, as uh, the tour moves on, this young couple um, sort of hangs back. And it's made clear during the tour that, that there's a city ordinance that requires them to close the gates at sunset for mm-hmm. unknown reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this young couple stays behind because uh, they're, they're going to get frisky in the cemetery. Yeah. Um, but very quickly, they find out why the gates have to be closed uh, at sunset because one of the crypts opens up and a vampire emerges. Dracula yes, it is Dracula. It, it's not immediately clear that it's Dracula, but he does ultimately identify himself. yeah um, and so he attacks um, but even and even though he has fed, he's weakened. He, he's like Dracula at half strength mm-hmm. and so he's just wandering the city trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and as he wanders uh, for a brief moment, Um, He senses a kindred spirit, something else undead roaming the streets. But in the haziness of his weakened abilities, that that sensation passes, and and he never figures out what it was. Turns out, the zombie Simon Garth is also in New Orleans at the time. Okay. But that's a story that we'll get in another magazine. Yeah. Um, Meanwhile, Dracula um, is drawn to uh, this place where... uh, a guy called uh, Gaston yeah, um, invites him in, so he's able to enter, um, but then immediately uh, attacks him with a black cross, uh, a voodoo cross. Um, and, and between his weakened state and the cross, he's basically kept immobile. Yeah. And Gaston uh, reveals Madame Laveau. Yeah. Um, and, and so Madame Laveau, it turns out, is sort of a, a voodoo priestess character who has figured out a way of achieving immortality without vampirism. But because it's not vampiric, she physically ages. So while Dracula does not age, she physically... She, she's ancient at this point. Um, but Gaston and Laveau are working together uh, because they are going to somehow use Dracula to make a potion that will give them both eternal youth. As you do. Right. Right. Um, And so Gaston draws some of Dracula's vampiric blood, which is supposedly the final ingredient. um, And they drink the potion. And she becomes a young woman again. But Gaston immediately ages and falls dead. Um, And it turns out that the final ingredient was actually Gaston's life essence. And that he had been tricked. And so now the two immortals are left alone. Um, she invites Dracula to join him, or to join her, uh, and that they could sort of become a couple. Um, but Dracula has a rule against dating people who have held him captive. <laughs> um, and so he turns her down um, and flies away as a bat. Yeah. Uh, I so, like this one. It's fun. It's fun? It's the most comic booky of the stories. Yeah, but that's okay. I do
0: have some gripes with it. Okay. For instance, I'm pretty sure the actual um, Marie LeVu was not a white woman.
1: Yes, that yes that, and some of that might be chalked up to the black and white art, Maybe. but but she's she's not drawn as a woman of color, which no. seems problematic.
0: Yeah, our first look at Simon Garth was fun.
1: Yeah, we get the it, it's like a one panel cameo. Yeah, but. It's kind of nice that, you know, knowing that that magazine is coming next. Yeah. That they they work in that little uh, moment. It's sort of like later on when Spider-Man and Dracula appear in the same issue but don't meet. Yeah. Um, It's just kind of a nice nod to these characters living in the same world. Um, And, I don't know, it's almost like a marvel cameo you know yeah like <laughs> it's like hey
0: this these are taking place in the same universe okay yeah
1: but it's sort of like how like if you've got a character normally from say la mm-hmm. and they travel to new york for an issue you're gonna have them at least like you're gonna have like uh the fantastic four tower in the background or you'll have Spidey swing by in a panel. Like, like if they're there, you're gonna, like, make use of the fact that they're there.
0: Yeah, it's one of the things, of the things we love about the Marvel Universe. Right. I, I am somewhat amused by Madame Laveau's assistant guy being named Gaston.
1: Why is that? Well,
0: you know, because it reminds me of Beauty and the Beast.
1: Oh, right. I mean... You know no one's duped like gaston wears big hoops like gaston no one crumbles to old wrinkled dust like gaston yes i admit love really played me my what a chump that gaston what just happened Uh, um i'm not quite sure uh did we just have a musical interlude Another one, it seems. Oh, no. Are we going to have to put out, like, an album of these things? I think we might. Oh, no. (laughs)
0: Um, Yeah, you know, it's not a bad little purchase, this magazine. No. It's, I could definitely see how this would keep you busy for 75 cents.
1: Exactly. And even, I mean, we we sort of skimmed over the the reprints, but chances are, if you were a kid when this mag was coming out, you had never seen those old stories before. No. And they're going to read different from the new stuff. But they're still new to you yeah so so yeah I think given the quality of the new stuff it's more than worth its cover price
0: and there's a little blurb on the last issue next issue the master of the living dead and three of his most fantastic and fear fraught adventures Dracula in Paris the prince of darkness stalks the city of light the soul searing sequel to this issue's ominous origin tale the phantasmagorical first exploit of the King of Vampires. And then, in a special surprise shocker, Dracula versus Solomon Kane, featuring the sword wielding hero created by Robert E. Howard, author of Conan. All this, plus a cryptic cornucopia of photos, fantasy, and fright filled features, will be raising from the coffin on June 19th. Be there by sundown, Pilgrim, and learn that Dracula lives.
1: That's a lot of content coming up.
0: Yeah, Um, luckily we don't have to cover any of it because we've escaped the tomb of ideas.
1: Isn't it great? It is so good. Yep. Freedom is nice. Yep. So, uh, I guess, now that we're done with that interview, we've we've sort of met one of our heroes. Yeah. And then uh, we we met Joe Bob, another of our heroes. Yeah. We've had a pretty good uh, time here. Um, I guess we should... Say hi to our families?
0: Yeah, I think they might miss us. Yeah. I'm like, wait, wait, what's that coming out of the vents? Uh, what? Oh no.
1: It's what's happening? It's gas! Oh no! It's gas! The door's are ah! The I, door's I, I can't open my door! No! I can't open my window! No! Won't open! No! Ah! No! Ah! Ah! <coughs> 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 no! the
2: place for famous last words.
1: Oh, I haven't seen any creatures.
2: Now, where's the big, bad monster? Six last gas movies, tonight at 8 on TNT. <coughs>
0: oh,
1: what? Oh, oh, my head. Oh, James? James? Huh? What, Mommy? Look. What? Ah, oh, shit. We're back. Tomb of ideas. Yep. Oh, no, it- Um, There's a a, a note here. Dear Trey and James, ha ha ha, better luck next time. I let you have your fun because it makes for good content. Now here's your next titles for the next episode. Frankenstein number four, Tomb of Dracula number ten, Werewolf by Night number seven, yours truly,
0: Gravely. (sighs) All right, I'll go grab the issues.
1: Wait a minute. What about that hole in the wall? It's patched up. And that looks like a little stronger than the stone walls from before. Yeah. Well, I guess we have to read more comics.
0: Yep. All right, listeners. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Two numbers. <laughs> ex <Ex-helsior. laughs>